0: Bob Seska Show Bob Seska Today's
2: Rachel Maddow Show Award for Headline Excellence goes to Bob Seska The Bob Seska
3: Show
0: from our nation's capital it is wednesday september 28 2022 and this is the bob seska interview on the sexy liberal podcast network hi i'm bob hello bob hi day 617 of the biden harris administration 40 days until the 22 midterms find me on instagram at the bob seska twitter bob seska underscore go and our patreon page is bob so today we're talking about the first on-screen political smear campaign in american history with author director greg mitchell who returns for his third appearance on the podcast Greg's the writer-director of the brand-new PBS documentary, The First Attack Ads, Hollywood vs. Upton Sinclair. It documents the 1934 gubernatorial campaign in California in which big-money interests and Hollywood executives teamed up to totally derail Upton Sinclair's campaign. Lots of very familiar smear tactics were rolled out for the first time in this one, and we're going to talk with Greg about how it all played out. You can catch the documentary on PBS starting October 1, Plus, you can watch at kcet.org/slash-first-attack-ads. Links in the description for everything, of course. Meantime, please help support this show by subscribing to our bonus content at BobSeskaShow.com. Okay, here's me and Greg talking about the first attack ads.
3: More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show.
0: There he is, Greg Mitchell. Holy
4: shit! How are you, man? I'm very good. I hope you can't use holy shit on the air, though, or on, or on the podcast, right? Oh, I so totally can. Oh, you
0: can. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This ain't radio, Greg. Okay, <laughs> I can, okay. I can okay. say whatever the hell
4: I, I want. I've uh, been long, long associated with that language. <laughs>
0: Well, holy hell, man! You've been busy, 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 busy. Thanks for taking the time to be here today. Sure, uh, happy to do it. Before we get into Upton Sinclair and everything like that, how's the newsletter going? It's one of my favorite things. Checking my uh, email inbox oh, every day. Yeah,
4: you know, it's it's good. I get good good feedback. Uh, I, I don't get as many subscribe, even though it's free. I'm I don't get as many subscribers as I I would like to or think I would. You know, so that's. I mean, I did get into it a little later after the big surge yeah, at, yeah. in newsletters, where after you know, people were starting to get 8 or 10 or, or 28 in their box, and maybe mm-hmm. that has something to do with it. Uh, I, I'm always a little bit of a letdown in terms of not as many uh, subscribing as I would like. Yeah,
0: it's a real challenge sometimes to build up those things. I find it's just a process. It's just a long, long process of attrition, yeah. just beating people well, to death with it be. until they join
4: up, right? Something new will be invented by then. and then have <laughs> to, uh, you know. Well, how can people sign up for your newsletter? Let's get that out of the way first. Well, they, I guess they'd have to find it. I guess if they search Greg Mitchell Substack, they'd find it. I mean, it's called uh, "Music and Politics." Uh, oh, there you go. Or "Between Rock and a Hard Place." <laughs> <All right. laughs> so, uh, sounds good. Yeah, I guess and that would do it.
0: It's got uh, politics in there. You do uh, political cartoons occasionally, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah, music, a lot of music videos, my own memoirs of my days at Crawdaddy. So, So, yeah, let's get
0: some more people signed up for your newsletter. I think it's about about damn time. It's
4: about time, that's
3: right.
0: Get that fixed. So I love the new documentary about this smear campaign, this historic smear campaign against Upton Sinclair in California. It's so incredibly germane to our current politics. Greg and of course you know that but before we talk about what happened to Sinclair in 1934 tell us about some of the political smear campaigns that preceded 34 uh being the first big on-screen campaign obviously there was a long history leading up to that right
4: yeah I mean um you know dirty politics has been a part of American history and campaigns, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of the people we feel are so were so revered and elevated back in the day, like, uh, you know, Washington and Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, for gosh sake, uh, yeah. all were victims of, uh, you know, personal attacks and, the, you know, the worst sorts of uh, language.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
4: then, uh, <laughs> uh, and then you had uh, campaigns uh, back then, and this is you know this is very important to remember when we we get to 1934, mm-hmm. is that uh, campaigns were were always run by the parties themselves, uh, and you've probably heard the expression uh, ward healers who are the, the sort of the local, uh, big city uh, people who are in charge of, oh, the yeah. various. Uh, Local areas, uh, but all under the the the, uh, the the thumb on direction of the party boss. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, Boss Tweed was an important figure, Tammany Hall in New York City, and and so forth. So, um, whatever abuses there were and fixed elections and uh, forced uh, donations, um, you know, came out of the party structure. Oh yeah, and uh, that started to change, uh, you know, thanks to this uh, 1934 campaign that we'll be, be talking about.
0: Well, a couple of the more notorious ones uh, before 34, wasn't it uh, the election of 1800 between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, where uh, I think they got, I think Jefferson got John Callender involved in that. He was a newspaper publisher and just some horrendous smear campaigns against John Adams. Of course, John Adams wasn't innocent in that regard either. And then, uh, you know, you maybe fast forward to 1860, that particular election, which was uh, one of the most heinous that we had ever seen up to that point because they just, the fire eaters in the South especially, just let fly with uh the most racist attacks against uh, Abraham Lincoln and what he was seeking to do in his campaign. uh, And that was <laughs> completely detached from reality. I think that's the common notion behind all of these smear campaigns is that it's, Purely disinformation. I mean, there's barely any substance to it that bears out in fact, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the name and the name of the game, I guess. Uh, and, of course, back in those days, uh, there was always a strong visual element already with cartoons. Oh, yeah. Uh, newspaper cartoons and uh, cartoons that were printed on leaflets. Again, you had the parties that would print up uh, pamphlets and uh, distribute. Um, you know, campaign flyers with uh, really vicious cartoons.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: and there's one, of course, uh, when I was back in school, um, I, I think the campaign that got the most attention in this regard was the, the Grover Cleveland campaign.
0: Mama, uh, yeah, Ma, where's the,
4: my paw? Right. Yeah. Where he was accused and perhaps rightly, I'm, I'm not sure what the, the final uh, judgment of history is of, you know, fathering an illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. Um, and um you know that always got a lot of attention in in school. I remember, right. and of course that was uh, in my in my film. I've got a cartoon from that, uh, oh, yeah. which is very funny and and so forth. So you know, um, so there always was a visual element to this sort of thing. They didn't, of course, didn't use the movie screen or the TV screen. No, no. Uh, You know, which, again, is the innovations we get to in 1934. So leading up to 34 uh, for the uninitiated,
0: Greg, tell us a little bit about Upton Sinclair's career up to that point, up to the point where he decided to run for governor of California. So he had been publishing these very popular muckraking books, right?
4: Right. Yeah. Again, but going back to school days, uh, he was always included with the muckrakers, you know, Lincoln Stephens and so forth. And um I guess I was a little when I started getting back into him about 40 years ago, um, uh, I was surprised even that his course's most famous book, The Jungle, mm-hmm. uh, about the meatpacking um horrid conditions in Chicago yep. was actually a novel. I guess I would have always figured it was uh, you know, a nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. Um, but indeed most of his work was as a, a novelist. He took uh Uh, social issue, uh, things that were in the public mind, and muckraked, as you might say, but uh, turned them into novels, often very successfully, sometimes, uh, you know, less so. Um, But at the same time, he was a uh, kind of a pamphleteer, you might say, a polemicist, Mm -hmm. uh, public speaker. He was, uh, in, in his day, one of the world's most famous socialists. He was a member of the Socialist Party. Yep. He was very much associated with the socialism, which was kind of booming at the time. Um and he was very famous around the world. His books were translated and published around the world. And he was he was really really one of the most popular, famous Americans yeah, in his day. Uh even as his books kind of varied in quality and sales. Um, but he did, I mean, he wrote a classic two, two-part two novel on Sacco and Vanzetti, for example. He, oh, yeah. he wrote a, a book on uh, oil in California, which became the Daniel Day-Lewis uh, uh, movie. Oh, There Will many, Be Blood. Yeah, many, yeah. Many, yeah, became many years later. Um, it, you could take any social issue, and he probably wrote a book, a novel or a nonfiction book about it. He was, you know, he would be arrested. And he started running for office in California as a, uh, as a socialist, he ran for governor twice and, and got, uh, got very few votes. Um, Oh, so he had
0: run previous to 34.
4: He had run. Yes. Okay. As a, as a socialist and got about 50,000 votes. Right. Um, so we got the 1933 and of course, um, FDR had been elected, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Democrats were uh, on the rise. Uh, there'd never been a Democratic governor in California. California was booming uh, during the uh, uh, Depression with all the people moving in from the Midwest. Uh, it, it actually had been booming before that in the mm-hmm. 1920s. And then uh, more people came. So California was kind of booming, and there, it, but it had always been Republican uh, yeah, business yeah. Um, going back. Okay, you know, going back forever. Mm-hmm. So, um, Upton Sinclair, uh, and of course, there was great poverty in, in the state uh, with all the people moving in and so forth. So
0: Yeah, and that was actually going to be later used against him, right? It was going to be used yeah. as a platform to smear Upton Sinclair as d- dragging yeah. in all these people who are seeking jobs during the Depression, and yeah. that would be used as a cudgel to attack Upton Sinclair. It's a, it's incredible. Right. The prosperity in California was actually then used against Sinclair, <laughs> the smear right. campaign right. we're about to talk about for sure.
4: So right. what? What go was? Ahead. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, so I was just going to say. So in 1933, he he decided he would uh, write a because uh, he was a writer. He decided, well, maybe I should run as a Democrat, mm-hmm. which he never had done. And um, but you know, I'll write a book about it, uh, which of course is very common today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, candidates run for president or even the Senate, and they always write a book. Uh-huh. You know in advance and sometimes it's just a you know crappy memoir of some kind but I guess maybe Sinclair uh, invented this too I'm not sure but uh, but he ran he wrote a book uh, which is actually more of a booklet it was about 60 seventy pages long yeah um and it was called uh, I Governor of California and how I ended poverty mm-hmm. and it uh it was a fanciful look back at how a can candidate Upton Sinclair ran for governor and um, on on an end poverty platform, and inspired a mass movement somehow. And, uh, and somehow was elected governor, and then had this, you know, wonderful four year term or whatever. Yeah. Um, And he published it in 1933. And then he changed his party affiliation to Democrat and set out to make the story true. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, my, my new film, um, you know, which, which, airs on PBS uh, is, um, you know, really looks at what happened later when we really more later at the, uh, after, uh, near the near the end of the campaign when he, he was the subject of the, uh, all these smears and, and the first attack ads. Yep. The title of the film, uh, um, thanks to MGM and so forth. But, you know, so there isn't as much play in the film about the actual epic, the end poverty in California movement, and and the early days of that movement. Now, mm-hmm. that's all in my book. I will plug my <laughs> book. It's called The Campaign of the Century, which uh, is, I have to say, something of a classic in the field. It was picked by the Wall Street Journal, for example, as one of the five best books ever written about any American election. Wow, outstanding. And I won, uh, won a major award and et cetera, et cetera. So that book is 600 pages long <laughs> and uh, includes everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, anyone, if you're interested in the subject, then uh, of course, I want you to see the film. Um, but the book itself uh, go, goes goes into the full story. Uh, and it's, it, it's a incredibly lively. It was the craziest, wackiest campaign you can imagine. Every <laughs> so famous figure, it seemed like every famous figure at the time from, you know, Ezra Pound and Will Rogers to, you know, Catherine Hepburn and Charlie Chaplin was mm-hmm. involved in the campaign. Um, and so there's all kinds of, you know, incredible, often funny quotes and wild charges and and incredible, colorful personalities. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so i will I will plug the book for that. but um, but uh, in any case, uh, the Sinclair campaign caught fire. Um, he did indeed involve uh, inspire one of the greatest mass movements in our history. Um, hundreds of epic chapters were founded all over the state. They started a weekly newspaper that ended up with over a million uh, circulation every week which is just astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, thousands to hundred tens of thousands of people's registered to vote. Mm-hmm. And this mass movement, um, you know, carried him along so that the following August, 1934 against a, a very, uh, you know, a credible group of op- democratic opponents. Yeah. Uh, Sinclair swept the primary in a landslide and, um, uh, appeared to be on the verge of being elected governor and making his book come really come true.
0: So why was the establishment in California, the moneyed establishment so terrified of Upton Sinclair? Why did right. they see Upton Sinclair as such a threat to their power structure?
4: Well, maybe because he was, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> there you go. Perfect. He's leading a populist mass movement mm-hmm uh he's he's laid out his platform which you know called for i mean it's hard to hard to boil down um you know uh in a couple minutes but it called for i mean it called for some things that actually FDR would end up uh, adopting and yeah, being yeah. Famous for a real social security system and um uh, you know uh, jobs programs and so on and so forth but it also went further than that uh, in, in setting up uh, a system where it was called production for use. And it would, it would basically say, we have all this great manpower in the state and, and woman power. Uh, and we've got all these great resources in California and there's so many, so much food and oranges and, you know, everything else. Um, surely we can put people to work, um, you know, creating, making things, um, and, uh, And, and, you know, and selling things almost, uh, you don't want to call it a a commune or a socialistic kind of utopia, but basically people would work and then sell to others uh, in the state who needed uh, food or needed uh, work done, build houses or whatever. And it was almost like a barter uh, situation, but it was, you know, it was kind of socialistic, you might say, on a state scale mm-hmm. in that you'd, you would provide jobs and work for all these people uh, who would be, you know, paid in money or in goods. Um, and the, and so many people would benefit from it. And it was just a, his, his claim, which was actually true, was that California was actually a very rich state. It just needed to have people, you know, working the fields and working factories and, you know, doing all that. Mm-hmm. So so this was a threat to the powers of be. California had been run by the uh, oil companies and by the banks and uh, even by the automobile association. Um, and um and uh, the the usual vested interests. Um, and so they took this as a uh, you know, as an incredible threat to them. And um, you know we we can get to Hollywood in a couple minutes if you want. But sure, sure. Hollywood was certainly in the, in the forefront of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the, with the movie moguls who were then quite conservative may surprise many listeners. Uh, I would think of liberal Hollywood, but uh, almost all the movie moguls then were quite conservative and Republican, and uh, they went so far as to threaten to move to Florida. If yes, that's right. And I, I make the joke that, well, there always was already was a city named Hollywood in Florida. So they <laughs> just move there. Exactly right. So how
0: did this smear campaign launch? Who are the architects of this thing? Who started the idea of turning to film and the shorts that were shown before movies at the time as a right. platform for a smear campaign?
4: Well, you know, the um, not just in terms of movies, but in terms of uh, so much else in in California, you know, uh, William Randolph Hearst was a key player. Mm -hmm. Uh, He owned, of course, the great newspaper chain and and also made movies at a movie studio. Uh, So he was in the forefront, certainly the California press, the LA Times was incredibly vicious towards Sinclair, the almost Every daily newspaper in the entire state was against sinclair um but you know Hearst was also involved in uh, in po- certainly politics and in Hollywood and then the other major player there was Louis B. Mayer, uh, the head of MGM, yeah, who was also I think second in command of the state Republican Party, a longtime Republican activist and um so he was kind of the prime mover. In Hollywood, Um, and they—they recognize, you know, as I show in my book, um, not so much in the film because the film has to kind of jump right into the action. But um, you know, the it—you know—took a little time to build. But all these intersections of Hollywood and um, you know the head of the sun-kissed growers. You yeah. can imagine what kind of force they were. Right, uh, A.P. Giannini, the founder of the Bank of America, again the most famous California bank. I mean, if you you name it, whoever was uh, what any big name in California was involved in this campaign. You know, almost all of them against Sinclair. So, um, but um, you know, the Hollywood angle basically came about. They tried all sorts of things to. Uh, turn the election around that there the candidate was actually an incumbent named Frank Miriam, a Republican, yep, who was, uh, you know, an incredible, uh, hack, dull, dullard, <laughs> ox as uh, Westbrook Pegler called him, right? Um, and um, not you know, the, not an inspiring char- uh, character, but you know, a, re- a Republican incumbent, so they at least they had that going for them, and um. So the basically Hollywood uh, tried uh, all sorts of things. I mentioned the move, threatening to move to Florida. They even took it. A couple of people took a trip there, well-publicized trip to scout locations. <laughs> uh, another thing they did was they forced at almost every studio. They forced uh, all the staffers from from uh, you know wardrobe people to uh, top stars. To donate one day's pay to the uh, Republican campaign or mm-hmm. the slush fund, um, and um, you know, very few were in the position to refuse. Jimmy Cagney was one. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, There's some conflicting evidence on odd uh, uh, on uh, Catherine Hepburn. Um, I interviewed Billy Wilder before he died. Uh, Billy Wilder, uh, director, had just arrived in America and he fought it and fought it, but finally gave in. Um, so cha- uh,
0: Chaplin was a supporter of uh Sinclair, yeah. Chaplin,
4: right? yeah. Yeah. Chaplin was one of it uh, was a longtime friend of Sinclair, so mm-hmm. he, he supported Sinclair, right. Um, But I don't think he gave him any money, but uh, that was Charlie. Here's the
0: best way to listen to The Bob Seska Show without all of these commercial interruptions. Just go right now to our Patreon page at bobseskashow.com. Scroll down to the link for the ultimate edition of the podcast and sign up for just $15 per month. In exchange for your super generous support, we're going to give you a completely commercial-free version of the Tuesday show, the Wednesday show, and the Thursday show. Plus, you're going to get the Shadow Docket show every Tuesday and Thursday. And wait, more things. You're also going to get the After Party podcast on Fridays with me and Kimberly included in that level of support. All for just $15 per month. Again, you get everything we have to offer at bobseskashow.com, and we thank you.
3: Bob Seska. All
0: day long. Hollywood, uh, I guess the darker side of Hollywood, I should say, has been sort of a through line in some of your more recent work. What What is it about the darker side of Hollywood that attracts you uh, to it as a, <laughs> as a subject? I'm fascinated by this because... We're kind of on the same page about that. I'm I'm very weary of this notion of, uh, quote unquote, liberal Hollywood. I think there are some people, yes, actors and some of the creative people are liberal. But by and large, you've got an entire community of executives there who are as far right and uh, capitalist as can be. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, of course, my uh, I've had two or three books and uh, I think. Uh, uh, two of my films recently have, have, have Hollywood's kind of been the bad guy. Uh, yeah, but, but you <laughs> know, the, these are historical things going back to before the nineteen fifties. So, um, you know, I'll leave you to uh, take care of the modern day. Uh, <laughs> well, but, thank you. you know, back, uh, but back then it really was. Um, and it really was true that uh, mm-hmm. Hollywood was not to the left. Uh, and, and in fact, the uh, jumping a little, little ahead in our story, the Sinclair campaign was a big reason that Hollywood did move, start to move to the left, because mm. the outrages by the studios uh, so angered the screen actors and, sc- and screen writers who had just started their guilds yep. and were having trouble getting traction, the outrage over this 1934 campaign sparked a huge surge in the screenwriters and the screen actors guild. Mm -hmm. And so they got, you know, many, many more members and turned very much to the left. Um, and, uh, then it it took a while for Mo for the moguls and the producers and directors to catch up, but the real, the real seeds of the liberal Hollywood, um, was was formed in reaction to this race. so mm-hmm. but yeah, and, uh, and
0: so much of what we see of Hollywood, even at that period of time when the filmmaking industry was still very much in its infancy, uh, is all fantasy. It's a facade. We What we see of Hollywood is a show, and there's a lot of seedy, dark things that occur under there. And I'm so glad that you're sort of on the wall, Greg, uh, pointing out some of that history.
4: Well, you know, uh, I guess it's like the, the Hollywood sets, right? It's yeah, all yeah. False, false facades, right? Exactly and what's, what's right. it's yeah. always funny to see what's behind them, but uh and sometimes not so funny. But uh <laughs> no, you know, um, but um you know, going back to the 34 race, um the um again again speeding up a little bit here is that, you know, and, and the, the notion of the first attack ads um is, I mean, basically what happened when we got into October of that year, Sinclair was probably still seen as winning.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and, um, and so uh, the next step was taken, which, and, and uh, I'm sure some in our audience and maybe many, I'm not sure, have seen the movie Mank, the David Fincher movie. Oh yes, and This, this uh, next part here was in a very important uh subplot in that movie which mm-hmm. is and the movie was even though it, it did have plenty of things false it 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 did it was it, it did capture a lot of the essence of this which is that uh, Irving Thalberg at MGM he was known as the boy wonder married to Norma Shearer, was certainly uh, the most f- famous and uh, popular producer in all of Hollywood um, really second in command to Louis B. Mayer at MGM. Not particularly political himself. In fact, he had been a boyhood orator for the socialists in New York City. Um, but, you know, he didn't really care about politics much one way or the other. And he, you know, he joined in and well, Upton Sinclair's definitely has to be defeated, even though he had not long before purchased two properties, two uh, um movie ideas and books from Upton Sinclair and paid him a very large sum of money to make into movies. So that's how there's Hollywood in your nutshell. Yes. The contradictions are immense. Right. So, uh, but in any case Thalberg decided to make a series of three movie shorts. Sometimes they've been sort of inaccurately, uh, including by myself, uh, referred to as newsreels. They actually were movie shorts. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of you may know that at uh, back in the day, uh, even back maybe in my day, uh, movie shorts were shown before most movies in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, little comedy things. Of course, there was Laurel and Hardy and and Chaplin and uh, Harold Lloyd and uh, and wacky little uh, Three Stooges, etc. And then, of course, cartoons. Right. Um, we're, yep. shown, were shown before movies, and of course, movies was movies were incredibly popular. It's like mm-hmm. watching TV. Um, I guess it was like watching primetime TV before everyone started streaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I don't want to make the comparison to today's TV, but. Um, <laughs> Back then, um, so many people went to the movies every week, you yeah. know, or more. Once a week, and, and that's so, where, they,
0: and a lot of people got their news from the newsreels. Right. News, we're yeah, there work. were
4: news, very popular news, you know, yep. Hearst and every everyone else. They had all these newsreels, and so, um, and I guess you could smoke and the whole thing. So, what, what more could you want? <laughs> uh, so, um, so you had an enormous audience there, and mm-hmm. an audience that was used to. Uh, taking Syria when there was serious news uh, presented in, in newsreels uh, or in movie shorts, um, we're used to taking it seriously, not thinking they were, you know, they're being bamboozled. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you have a captive audience and you have an audience that's, uh, you know, sort of suspends belief or disbelief, um, which I guess is what Hollywood's all about mm-hmm. uh, anyway. Uh, so, um, so Thalberg had the genius idea of making these three, Movie shorts, and um, you know, in my f- first attack ads film, I, you know, this is kind of what I focus on, and uh, so, but but what what he did was he he took a a um, a, a maker of of, uh, sh- of shorts and little test screen tests for MGM named Felix Feist Jr. and sent him out uh, with a crew to interview the first two of these. Uh, movie shorts were basically inquiring reporter things Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. where you go out in the street uh, and pigeonhole various people, not exactly a scientific sample, even in the best of circumstances, <laughs> and um, ask them awkwardly, you know, well, what do you think about this or that? And so, um, so that's what they did here. And they did, you know, they did interview, uh, you know, some people who were actually, uh, you know, people in the street uh in southern all in Southern California of course mm-hmm. um uh but they also uh they also interviewed or set up uh apparently uh people a uh, few people from Central casting who were kind of <laughs> given scripts of course and so they were filmed uh you know film of course they were either blasting, Um, Upton Sinclair or endorsing Miriam his Mm -hmm. opponent Uh, and they were so if you watch these two newsreels uh, you would see all the very reputable people well-dressed well-spoken yep so nice old grandmothers uh you know small businessmen um all endorsing Miriam and raising, you know, and raising uh, alarms about Upton Sinclair, calling him a radical and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have the Sinclair people yes, who were uh, tended to be a little shady looking, odd uh, looking, odd
0: sounding. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Spoke with foreign accents. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them called him Upton Sinclair. Uh, <laughs>
3: no.
4: You know, uh, one of them actually said, uh, I've, I would vote for Upton St. Clair. He was the author of the Russian government. Ah! And it, worked, it worked very well there and it will work
0: well here. Wow. Yes. Uh, and then there was another guy who's like, I support Upton Sinclair, but some of his policies are a little too radical for me. Right. And this yeah. is like, oh, okay, all right. We see what's going on here. Yeah.
4: And you know, so some of these, some of these people were actually real people. Okay. They, they, yeah. they, they could cherry pick. They had enough people to cherry pick. Uh, and if, if they see a gap tooth, old guy on shuffling on the street and they'd say, oh, let's interview that guy. And then, uh-huh. of course, he endorses Sinclair. Right. But some of them were also obviously straight from central casting and were given scripts and so forth. So um, so these two uh, movie shorts, of course, caused a sensation um, where you got a lot of of, of press uh, there supposedly were showing the public opinion and the direction of the campaign um so even people who didn't see them um would be uh, could be influenced by them yeah and I, the other I, thing I, Hollywood did was they had they basically made a deal so that uh, instead of just being shown before certain studios movies uh all the uh the theater owners opened up their screens for these so they were shown um you know, in, in almost every theater as opposed to just, you know, certain ones before we go off of the man on the street
0: shorts. But before we leave that subject, I want to talk about that because there's something that's nefarious about the psychology that's employed with these sorts of things. It It actually reinforces the biases of the people watching that in in a sort of toxic feedback loop, making it okay to believe stupid shit. It's like when Chuck Todd reports on poll results on cable news, for example, you know, is climate change real? We're going to talk about what people think about climate change. Instead of reporting on the truth of the issue, they're just reflecting the bias of the people. And the awful thing about that is it works. It's completely wrong. But it works, and we see it on display right here with these uh these early early shorts,
4: yeah, well, you know what what's uh you know what's what's key about this is that there hadn't been anything like this before
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, you know the, we, we we there had been dirty campaigns as we mentioned, yeah, but the moving pictures newsreels uh movie screen uh either stayed out of politics or it was just very. Uh, you know, uh, they would try to run it down the middle or they, they certainly didn't have commercial type commercials or mm-hmm. things that were that one sided. Um, so people didn't really, you know, didn't really expect that this was, uh, you know, kind of faked. Um, yeah. So it had an especially big, uh, especially big impact.
0: Um, It sounds an awful lot like Fox News Channel, what Roger Ailes did in 1998, where he started mixing in propaganda and disinformation and disguising it as actual news. So you mix in these, in particular, these three shorts against Upton Sinclair, and you put them up right next to newsreels and things like that to make them seem more legitimate, right? And that's exactly what Roger Ailes did with Fox News Channel.
4: Everything that's old is new again, right? Yeah, yeah. So what what then happened was, of course, Sinclair hadn't yet been knocked out of the race. So uh, Thalberg then uh, sent uh, Felix Feist out to uh, basically Colton, California, which was a terminus for the uh, Southern Pacific Railroad. Mm -hmm. And um, now they may have tried; uh, maybe they even succeeded slightly in in finding. They won the. What was the biggest? issue in the press and again this is the way the press and the um, hollywood and the media uh sort of joined forces is the big story in the press at the time was this influx of alleged uh, bums and hobos and oh, yeah. uh, migrants you know here again here we have a subject very
0: uh <laughs> yeah torn from to the headlines details. yeah
4: yeah here comes the mig- the migrants are heading to mm-hmm. california and um so they wanted to go out and, and film some of them coming in on uh, boxcars and trains and so forth. And, um and this was, and they supposedly they were, now they were coming because they were promised uh work by Upton Sinclair and his epic uh, utopia and so forth. So now there's this incredible, allegedly this um, incredible rush to California. uh Thanks to Upton Sinclair. Yeah. So, um, MGM hoped hoped to. I don't know if they hoped to. Maybe they they thought they could find uh, some hobos coming in, and uh, and they may have. Maybe they even did film a little. You know, a small number. But um, they use clips. They, based, they, they use do, clips from actual movies. In, yeah, they then yeah. supplement what, whatever they got. And, and, and it's it's impossible to tell exactly what they filmed, but it's it's kind of clear. Um, what they didn't film because, you know, I found the footage that, it, that, it, that it had been shot earlier and basically was already in archives and hmm. of, of bums coming in, uh, you know, jumping off trains somewhere uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, and even uh, clips outtakes from a recent movie. Uh, right. Movie drama was used. And so they kind of, uh, you know, the MGM, of course, is very creative and uh, professional studio. So they were able to kind of mix these kind of clips together uh, with the narration, all aimed at uh, explicitly warning about these people coming in and they're coming in to take your job and they're, they're bums and they're, hmm. you know, they don't care about you. And, then uh, they're all, ever since they heard about the Epic plan, they're heading for California. Right. And so um this uh was became the movie short number three in the last week of the campaign and it really caused a sensation because the sinclair supporters in the audience of which there were many um it, it might have even uh, i mean well some of them told me they kind of laughed about uh the uh in- inquiring reporter um thought it was no one would could believe that stuff uh but mm-hmm. this one they they saw accurately i mean this maybe you might say was the first modern attack ad because it was it really was uh uh showing uh you know uh, allegedly true things that were going on and um, and so this caused riots in movie theaters. Um, wow! And the Sinclair people, uh, one of whom I interviewed, you know, were, were just yelling and shouting, and it's, it's yelling out, it's propaganda, you know? <laughs> and um, storming the box office and all that kind of stuff. So mm. this third one really set off uh, set off a uh, uh, a lot of uh, outrage. Right. And, but uh, but again. I'm sure was very, uh, very effective throughout, you know, running throughout the straight a week, mm. uh, a week before the campaign.
0: And there was and, a th- there was an element, too, where they were attacking Sinclair. And this is something that's also very familiar in modern times. They were attacking socialist Sinclair as being a communist. I mean, they were going full blown communist with some of those smears. Right.
4: Yeah. Well, he would he was actually very anti-communist there mm-hmm. was even a communist candidate in the campaign the socialists then were very anti-communist yeah and so um now of course people lump socialism with communism then so it was very easy
3: mm-hmm.
4: very easy to do so um but yeah red baiting was a big thing uh, all these the the leaflets you know as a, as a, as i mentioned what 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 was the big the, the other big innovation of the campaign was was the uh, the Uh, The Sinclair threat was so great that they the uh, Republicans, the conservative Democrats uh, went outside the party uh, apparatus for the first time. Yes. And they put in charge of the campaign uh, advertising people, public relations people, uh, some from national from Chicago and New York City uh, and. uh, and what now we would call political consultants, the first two first two uh, political consultants in U.S. history, Clem Whitaker and Leona Baxter. They were out of San
0: Francisco, right?
4: Yeah, they were hired to uh, basically set up front groups and uh, run the campaign in the north. There was an incredible slush fund that paid for zillions of pamphlets and leaflets and distributed all over the state uh, you know, with the wildest accusations against Sinclair and so some of them weren't even that wild that they mm-hmm. just were went everywhere um and so you had you had what basically the 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 first time a campaign was was really run by spin doctors political consultants advertising people a national fundraising for a state race um and that's why I called my book the campaign of the century, <laughs> because yeah. sure, it wasn't the the most important campaign of the century. But in terms of, of changing politics, changing how elections were run, um, it was my claim, this was the campaign of the century. So, um, and then you mix in how this was Hollywood's first all out plunge in the politics. So all those elements came together in this one race. And basically, because, you know, what, a socialist was about to be elected governor of uh, one of the largest states in the land
0: okay short break back with more greg mitchell right after this
5: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
1: Welcome to Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure. How it holds us back
3: More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show.
0: And so the shorts didn't contain any credits or attributions. So audiences generally had no idea who the hell was behind these films. What effect did that have? Obviously, we see parallels now with uh, dark money groups and so on. So this was a similar thing, but in terms of the actual content. So what was the effect of the uh, lack of
4: attribution? Well, it may have helped them, I suppose, or people would say this is not uh, MGM, for example, yeah. um, coming from them. Or well, we know that the studios, uh, you know, Republican, and so um, I- I'm not so sure that was the aim. I just think MGM didn't <laughs> didn't want to be associated with it. There, um, but yeah, it was very unusual at the time to have no credits at the beginning or the end, mm-hmm. it just California election news with a map of California. And then straight into the uh, four or five minute short. What was the
0: White House's involvement, if at all? I know uh, Roosevelt didn't endorse the uppy and downy ticket, as it became known. Right. <laughs> and So why was that? Well, you would think that Roosevelt might be all over a campaign like Upton Sinclair's, uh, given what Roosevelt would eventually go on to do as his yep. solution to the Depression.
4: Yeah, you know, as, as I as I show in the book and the film, the uh, I mean, you could write a whole book about FDR and this campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so, so so complicated. I mean, the, one of the first things Sinclair did after he won the primary in August was take make the long trip to Hyde Park in New York to visit with Roosevelt. Um, at home and of course he assumed that roosevelt either would endorse him then or at some point i mean here's he's the standard bearer for the party in california yeah California's never had a democratic governor Mm -hmm. um yeah there's another election coming up in a couple years and fdr would want to carry california um and he thought fdr's heart was in the right place and and uh and so forth so he made this long trip and they were very friendly. And he came out of uh, the meeting kind of hinting that Roosevelt would endorse him at some point. And Roosevelt indeed may have told him that. I'm not sure, we can't say for sure. But then in, as the weeks went on, um, I think FDR got cold feet. Uh, some of his advisors wanted him to endorse Sinclair, others didn't. <laughs> uh, they thought it might tarnish what FDR was trying to do, which was there was no slam dunk. You know, Most of the major New Deal, uh, legislation hadn't passed yet you know some of it had and um and then of course because of the the effects of this smear campaign um uh, made roosevelt start to fear that well sinclair is not going to win anyway so uh the last thing i would do is endorse him yeah um and uh, so the smear campaign i mean it wasn't directed at keeping fdr out of the race but it was a nice byproduct mm-hmm. and um so FDR then uh, did not endorse Sinclair. And so, well, I guess he's neutral, but it actually, as I showed for the first time, behind the scenes, um, near the end of the campaign, White House operatives actually did cut a deal with Sinclair's opponent where they would kind of signal that they didn't really like Sinclair. Ugh. And in return, the Republican opponent would not oppose the new deal once he took office. So in the end, uh, FDR kind of, uh, not, not, a, not a profile in courage, let's put it that
0: way. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, now we look back at FDR and we think, OK, well, he, here's a man of principles who was kind of like a juggernaut uh, moving forward, especially in the 1930s. And uh, it wasn't necessarily that way. I mean, obviously, yeah. he got a lot of amazing things done, lots of legacy things. But at the same time, there were a couple of instances, and this being one of them, in which FDR walked right up to the line and then backed off. I would say another example of that was in 37, when he cut back on a lot of the New Deal spending, which created another recession. And so it wasn't all, like, full speed ahead for FDR throughout those years, was it?
4: Yeah. Well, he had – I mean, you know, let's say he was not a flaming radical to begin with, but he (laughs) – you know he he couldn't get he, I mean he had a better if you want to compare him to Biden or Obama, yeah uh, you know he he had a little more uh, he had a little more per- personal popularity and he had a little more of an edge in Congress, but it was not not a slam dunk mm-hmm. and so he was always concerned okay, I've got this uh, legislation through um, but am I going to be able to get this through? Uh, and uh, w- and if I'm being tagged as a socialist and so forth, then, uh, you know, it's not going to happen because um, there was plenty of opposition to FDR, even among Democrats. And he had to, you know, he had to squeeze things through. So um, he certainly could have behaved differently here. He could have behaved differently in some other cases. Uh, that's what we start to say about Obama. You know, he was yeah. too well, too right. I mean, he got some good things done. He pushed at sometimes, but in general, was very squishy, and uh, you know, didn't uh, didn't push hard enough for certain things. And uh, uh, you know, and that happened with Roosevelt too. But you know, after 1934, when there was even though Sinclair lost, uh, a lot of other uh, liberal or lefty type candidates won. Yeah, there was uh, a even real in California. Even mm-hmm. in California itself, uh, except Sinclair didn't win, but a lot of other uh, state candidates did win. Um, And, um, you know, California never looked back. It's been towards the liberal um, edge, at least on the Democratic side ever since. And uh, so Roosevelt was able to get more done in 1935 and 1936. before, as you say, he started pulling back again. Right, and there were so many, as you just said, there's so many upsides
0: to that 34 election where you had a lot of down-ballot liberals uh, winning their races uh, during that same election. Uh, what were some of the other upsides? Uh, you also mentioned, I think, uh, the unionization of Hollywood, yeah. for example. Yeah, And so yeah. that yeah. that started the, the ball rolling, and it's so ironic that Sinclair didn't win, but yet all of these other positive developments emerged out of and, that. Uh,
4: yeah, that's right. I mean, um it was uh yeah, we 1935, 36, 37 was uh, the real surge in union uh, organizing across the country.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and you had some wild, you know, wild men in other places. Huey Long, uh for all his faults, was certainly a a voice of many people in Louisiana. Uh and there were other um uh, sort of lefty types around the country, La Follette's and so forth, um, and um, so it was. Uh, you know, it, it was a, it was an exciting time, and a lot of progress was made. A lot of th- things became established, including labor unions. And again, all the battles they had, and some of the battles they lost, and uh, and all that. But yet, labor unions became entrenched. And uh, of course, flourished into the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, thank God for that. Then, mm-hmm. thank thank God they're coming back now. But um, you know, a lot there's a lot of great progress that came out of the 30s, even though some of it was turned back, you know, many years later.
0: If it hadn't been for the smear campaign, do you think Sinclair would have won? I know it's kind of a what if hypothetical, but do yeah. you think he would have won that
4: race? I, I think he. I think he very well might have, because there was such. Um, uh, you know, such support for him and excitement. And, and they, you know, that the first three weeks after the election, four weeks after the primary, the Democratic uh, infrastructure, all the leaders in California
3: mm-hmm.
4: endorsed him. And they came, they had a big party convention and they, you know, uh, posed with him and said good things about him. Because at that point, the, the, the real smear campaign had not begun yet and the thought was okay he can win we're going to have to deal with it and like every uh, radical when he takes office he's 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 going to move to the middle yeah so let's bring him into the fold here and um you know there's no question that um let's say 6 weeks before the election in november he was definitely the front runner yeah yeah in fact and, you- and it was only after the smear campaign that And the movie shorts and everything else that the Democrats started drifting from him. And once the Democratic leaders started drifting, it was a signal to the non-epic type people that they should maybe stay home or, Mm -hmm. or vote for the Republican. And of course, operatives like Rove, Atwater,
0: Stone, Bannon, all descendants of the 34 crusade against Sinclair, right? Or do you, do you see that as the launching off point for modern smear campaigns uh, that we see today? Or do you trace it all the way back to, you know, the founding of the Republic? You trace it all the way back to 1800. What is the, what's the sort of patient zero for the ugly politics that we see so prevalent now?
4: Well, you know as as we said at the beginning that the certainly smear campaigns go back forever, but sure sure. the significance of the thirty four race was was the uh, bringing to the fore the uh, freelance experts from outside the parties who were much better at what they did mm-hmm. and uh, and so not only were they much better at what they did in the public relations and uh, advertising, but uh, the new use of the movie screen. Mm -hmm. that which of course became television uh you know 15 years later or so um so i think you can trace the that's why i say i i say this is the birth of the modern political campaign yeah Um, came so much came out of this campaign and so uh and of course now you have uh attack ads that are central to campaigns not just kind of like uh even back in the days of the Willie Horton ad, for example, oh, yeah, yeah, it was like, well, this is sort of a crazy, interesting thing. And it seems to be having a big impact, you know, but it was in a presidential race and it was part of a much, much bigger uh, strategy where it seems like in, in this year, for example, attack ads are almost central to most campaigns. Oh, yeah. Um so you know you can't overstate the importance of of uh of these kind of attacks coming to the screen and how they were embraced how they were seen as effective and then um you know have grown during the television age and now online and streaming and everything else so um so that alone was significant uh, but also just the turning over campaigns to the the real uh whizzes. Yeah. The real whizzes are, uh, <laughs> Arthur Schlesinger put it that this campaign showed the way from the smoke filled room to Madison Avenue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact,
0: so, you know, there was a quote that jumped off the screen for me in the documentary, uh, Greg, and that is the uh, quote from Irving Thalberg, which was nothing is unfair in politics. Yeah. and boy do we see that writ large now <laughs> yeah. donald yeah. trump being primary uh, example of that uh the unfairness yeah. in politics and so that's certainly been uh, exploited these days and yeah you can definitely trace it all the way back to 34 for sure yep
4: yeah. so um anyway so it's like it's easy to make these connections i think and it's it makes this uh i think uh Campaign, which is I think so interesting. I mean, I've been writing about this campaign for 40 years, literally, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, you know, just recently was able to make the film. But uh, the uh, it's always kept my interest because there's so many interesting characters involved, and you know, uh, uh, both from the arts and from. uh, politics and you know, writing and, uh, the, 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 press people like, uh, you know, Will Rogers became a true hero to me. Uh, and, um, so it's, it's just an incredibly lively, uh, in some ways crazy story, but with, with tremendous import, not just for, um, you know, the future of campaigns, but just when you get back to, okay, this was the time of the depression. This is I mean, this was end poverty in California. Yeah. This was not, a, this was not a, like a Donald Trump, you know, a mm-hmm. cult of personality or celebrity. Oh, up in Sinclair. He's such a, such a well-known person running this campaign. No, he, I mean, he was running on this platform to end poverty in California. Yeah. Yeah. It could not be more serious, but at the same time, the circus around it was just uh, incredibly colorful and, uh, uh, fun to uh, fun to watch, at least uh, many years later. I was mentioning what if
0: earlier. Is that one of the attractions that you have to the 34 campaign and Upton Sinclair, the what if he had won? What would the trajectory of our history, our national history, in fact, been had he won that campaign? I mean, I think back to you know, events like uh, the assassination of JFK as another big what if, like what if uh, he had not been assassinated and we had pulled out of Vietnam and that hadn't happened. And so I, those, it's one of the great what ifs for me. Is is that one of the things that attracts you to that uh, particular year and that particular campaign or uh, a combination of a bunch of different things?
4: Well, I, I suppose so, only because there was enough of that in the air there and yeah. then that in, in different states around the country uh, that and in the arts, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, and in the unions, uh, factories, uh, that you could see, well, if he, had, if he had won and, okay, started to put his ideas into practice and um, maybe some of them he would have abandoned and maybe some of them would have failed, but mm-hmm. maybe some of them would have succeeded and you would have had uh, – you know, put not just the notion of let's have unemployment relief, but let's have full employment, Um, that that would be uh, even if he came close to that, um, that would be a lesson for the rest of the country, you know, because the the whole, again, the whole image was, you know, here's an able bodied man or woman, able to work, wants to work. Um, There's plenty of things to work on. Mm Uh, there's plenty of things to produce and, and, and sell uh, or just build homes for other people yeah or provide food for other people. It, it's insane. you know you step back from it and you say, well, it's it's insane that we don't have that even today. Um, and so here it is, uh, how many years later now? I've given up. 88? Yeah. <laughs> Don't ask me to do the math, Greg. <laughs> I just did it pretty quickly there. So <laughs> I'm bad. a little older than you. I'm a little older than you. So um,
3: So our, our- anyway,
4: so yeah. So I think said, yeah, he, it, it, if he succeeded even part way, it would have set an example. Sure. Uh, even in losing, he helped push Roosevelt to the left. Mm-hmm. And we did get Social Security the next year and the Works Progress Administration and a bunch of other things. So uh, imagine if he'd won. Um, so um, anyway, it's interesting interesting to, to speculate because yeah. you know the stakes were really high.
0: Are attack ads on television effective anymore? Seems like the the real smear campaigns have migrated to the Internet with just viral disinformation campaigns. We see lots of trolls and bots out of Russia and other places like that injecting these kinds of ideas into the conversation more organically than some sort of presentational thing that you see during a commercial break, which most people are fast forwarding through. On their DVRs, anyway. So, are we kind of seeing the last gasp of that as a
4: format? Well, I don't see that. I mean, it may be that they're not that effective, but certainly the candidates uh, and their handlers think they are because there's more of uh, my observation <laughs> yeah, yeah. is more than ever. Yeah, yeah. There, there's more of them than ever. Hmm. And, um, and of course, you know, uh, there's declining numbers for network TV, but. Um, you know where did the where do these ads get the most play well they're Twitter links and YouTube uh, on YouTube and right so, yeah if there was no internet then you might say well you know people people aren't watching TV they're they're reading books or something I don't know but uh, but instead people are 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 on the web and these ads are so easily spread um on social media
3: mm-hmm. that
4: um I think that, I mean, that may even be the prime audience, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. social media. So you, you do a thirty minute or uh, thirty second or sixty second spot, and it's uh, lively, um, and uh, you know, and one side, you know, one sided, and so forth, and then it gets spread everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, and that's maybe more in people's face than on TV commercials. They may turn off, turn a wall, turn away from commercials of any sort, whether it's Arby's or, you know. Yeah. Uh, but you know yeah they're having a good time surfing the web and checking their twitter and you know and here's uh you know these attack ads keep popping up and some of them are kind of amusing so mm-hmm. um i don't know i i don't see that that i don't see that attack ads have peaked yet okay but, uh, all right who knows there may be there may be a revelation this year that you know these are actually uh, hurting more than helping and then we'll see uh I don't know what we'll see after that. I don't know what the alternative is, but um. well, meantime the uh, documentary is called "The First Attack Ads:
0: Hollywood versus Upton Sinclair." The premiere is uh, what Saturday, October first, nine p.m. on KCET in uh, LA. Is that where the right. premiere is happening?
4: Yeah, but the you know the key thing and what's exciting is that uh, you know the the first two premieres are in Los Angeles, but yeah. the it's going to be streaming right away. People are going to if you any sort of PBS app, whether you have it yourself or it's on Apple TV, yeah. uh, it's gonna be out it, it's gonna be available nationally. And then it and it's gonna roll out at uh stations around the country also. Uh, I mean, it's not like Ken Burns thing, you know, where it's on the same night everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But um, for example, it's gonna be on WNET Channel 13 in New York City, which is the biggest station probably in the country, I would think. Wow. Um, it's going to be on there on October the night of October 9th and then two more showings there. But you know I, but you know uh, again in the modern age, I imagine more people will see it uh, via the web and uh, you know apps and so forth. So yeah. uh, any, starting next starting October 2nd, anyone who's interested, check your uh, check online, check out. it may even be available right at the KCET in LA. If you go to their site, it yeah, might very k- be, You could go there and it's, it'll be there. You won't even have to get a, a PBS app or look for it on Apple TV. It'll be there.
0: Right. KCET.org slash first attack ads. That's the direct website address. And in fact, I'll put that in the description under this episode too, with, all of the other appropriate links for how people can uh, watch the documentary. It is utterly fascinating. It's about thirty minutes long, and yeah. it's a as you were saying before, it's a, it's kind of a great companion piece to that movie Mank, which is an outstanding film. So, as you were saying, some historical inaccuracies in there, including what eventually became of uh, Mister Feist. Which was
4: (laughs) not not kill himself. Yeah, Uh, here's a spoiler alert: (laughs) Vice did not kill himself. Uh, Yeah, and he didn't didn't regret it.
0: Yeah, he didn't regret the uh, smear being part of the smear campaign. Uh, Greg, it was such a pleasure once again. Congratulations on this documentary. It's an amazing piece of work. I absolutely recommend it to everyone to uh, check out, especially because it has such resonance today. And uh, that's one of the many things that makes it so great. So thank you again for putting this together, you and Lynn Goldfarb, uh, who was the producer on on this project. And uh, I'm looking forward to having you back on uh, to talk about your next attack on Hollywood.
4: (laughs) Why Uh, do you hate hate Hollywood? (laughs) Well, actually, my my next film is is set close to the same period, and this time Paramount is the bad guy. Uh Uh Uh-oh. Can you so. can you preview exactly what that might be? No, I'm gonna let it go for that okay. now. But it, it's good. another my yeah. my fixation on how film footage is uh, suppressed or distorted or uh, you know. Uh, does can do bad things uh in the people the powers that be that yeah. uh, manipulate it so that's my next but paramount becomes the uh kind of the bad guy in the next one
0: outstanding well we'll have you back on as soon as that happens all right so Bob, thanks it's always it. a pleasure thanks so much greg take
3: care bye-bye bye-bye
2: could we both be honest here this time I won't spit your name if you'll learn mine. I'll be fine. Got this feeling, love might have shown. But it's clear now, I'll have to go. Just one thing.